I think journaling and meditation are very good ideas. I think anything that allows you to just take a little bit more time to look more closely at what's going on for your experiences. Talking to a therapist can be very helpful too, but there's any number of ways of going about this. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Would you like to write a psychology book? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast. Some nonfiction books are harder to write than others. If you're an expert in a topic, sometimes you can just open up Google Docs, Word, or your writing application of choice and bang out as a couple of thousand words, repeat for a couple of days, weeks, and months, and publish your nonfiction book. In fact, many successful nonfiction authors have built careers by publishing short nonfiction books that cover a specific topic and then publishing these books frequently. Now, this writing workflow doesn't work for every genre or niche. What if you're writing something that's more technical, that involves more research, or something that involves uh, drawing on your expertise in a field? What if you're writing a psychology book, for example? My guest this week is a professional psychotherapist working in London. His new book is called Other People, Something You Should Know, and it's a must-read for anybody who's interested in learning more about mental health and its triggers. Now, for writing this particular book, Jonathan drew on his professional expertise when he retrained as a psychotherapist, and also the many years and hours he spent reading the latest literature, academic papers, and working with his clients or patients. In the interview, it was interesting to hear about how Jonathan approaches his research for books like this. Now, my takeaway from listening to Jonathan is that every author needs a system for their research. Even if you're writing fiction, it's good to have a place where you can put your ideas for your stories or whatever it is that you want to turn into something that's public facing. My current system for research involves building a personal Zettelkasten, and I've previously talked about the Zettelkasten method on the Become a Writer Today podcast. In fact, there's a popular interview with Sasha Fast that I'd recommend you go and check out if you're building your personal Zettelkasten. If you're not quite ready to take it that far, but you still want to write something like a psychology book, it's at least helpful to have something like a citation manager so you can manage all of your papers and research and so on. Papers is actually a great citation manager, as is Zotoro. Those are two good apps I recommend you check out if you find yourself wading through academic papers, literature, and other types of materials that you want to turn into a non-fiction book. In the interview, I also asked Jonathan about his goals for this particular book, because lots of authors have different goals for their books. Some authors, like the ones I mentioned uh, about two minutes ago, write books because it helps them earn revenue and royalties, and it's part of their business. It pays the bills. Others write books because they have a message they want to get out into the world. And some people write books because they have a creative urge that they want to express on the blank page. So if you're considering writing a psychology book, or a non-fiction book, or even a fiction book, I'd encourage you to sit down and write out three to seven reasons why you want to write the book in question. Is it for money? Is it to make an impact? Is it to share your story? All of these reasons are fine, and so are whatever other reasons you may have. But understanding the why to writing a book will sustain you when you run into trouble with your first draft, when the book takes a little bit longer than you thought, and when time comes to edit it. It would also help you become more comfortable with the process of marketing your book because you'll know what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Before we go over to this week's interview, please consider uh, hitting the star button and reviewing to become a Writer Today podcast because your reviews and ratings will help more listeners find the show. And you can, of course, share the show with another writer or a friend on Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you're listening. And if you've got feedback, I'm on Twitter at Brian J. Collins, B-R-Y-A-N. 
My guest today is Jonathan Coppin, who's a psychotherapist and also the author of the new book, Other People Should Know. He's also got a background in merger and acquisitions. And I can't say I've interviewed many people who've been involved in mergers and acquisitions, but welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you, Brian. Nice to talk to you. So I'm looking forward to hearing about all of the uh, key ideas inside of your new book. But before we do that, could you maybe describe your writing journey and how you navigated from mergers and acquisitions to psychotherapy to now writing your new book? Well, it would be a mistake to describe it as a, as a plan or even a navigation, really. It's two very distinct careers. The first one was, you know, was working in law and M&A for about 20 years. And as most people do who work in that line of business, sort of deciding to leave it sometime, you know, in their, in their kind of early middle age. And then looking around for something to do next, thinking about a second career. And that tracked me back to my first degree, which was in psychology and involved taking myself back to college and doing a master's degree and then working for some years in the NHS and kind of emerging as a, as a psychotherapist in private practice. My understanding is when you're working in a career like psychotherapy, perhaps writing essays and academic papers could be one particular path. Was that something that you explored before becoming an author? It is what I explored a bit, but in the end, I, you know, I felt that the ideas that were most interesting to me were ones that you know, really involved stepping back from clinical practice and looking at it from some distance and thinking around the subject a little more widely than you can really do in academic journals. Did it take you long to come up with the concept or the idea for your new book? I think the seeds were germinating pretty much from the, from the beginning, from when I first started re-encountering psychology and mental health care. It took some time to formulate. It's probably been about 10 years in gestation. And it's been, you know, it's, it's something that's been influenced by a lot of the thinking that's going on around mental health care at the moment. It's fair to say a lot of uh, mental health and self-help books are very much focused on the self and how the reader can make changes in their own life to achieve what they want and to accomplish their goals. But you, you've taken a slightly different track with your, your book. That's exactly right. I think, you know, to a large extent, my book is a reaction against what's a very highly individualistic approach in mental health care and well-being. You know, there's this idea around that everybody has to go on a highly personal inward journey, that everybody's different, we're all unique. And, you know, of course, that's true. We are all different, but we have a lot in common too. And we have a lot of similarities. And I think something important is being missed there. What would you say are the common mistakes that people make when they're trying to accomplish something in their own life or to fix a problem if they're just focused on themselves rather than looking at their external environment? I think what gets missed is how is the importance of, of self-esteem to well-being and also to mental health. And pretty much everything we do is organized around a principle of trying to feel okay about ourselves. And that's, you know, that's a surprisingly difficult thing to do. Psychology has known for a long time that there's an inbuilt mechanism in all of us to kind of feel lousy about ourselves. And you know, that's that was Freud's superego, that's imposter syndrome, that's the inferiority complex, that's the inner critic, the inner bully. It's it's got lots of names and it you know, it gets everywhere. And when people talk about things having purpose or meaning, what they usually mean is they're talking about the things that that help them to feel to feel better about themselves. And an important aspect, you know, a very vital aspect of how we see ourselves is how we see other people. And 
it's odd in many ways that when people are in trouble and they're feeling you know, acutely self-conscious about their own failings and sense of inadequacy, that we usher them into a dimly lit room and sit them down with somebody who's pretending to be really very well and very resolved and subject them to an intense process of self-scrutiny, which is you know, all and only about them. And when we know the evidence is that from group therapy and from support forums, that one of the things that people find most valuable is recognizing that things about themselves, which they had always regarded as being unique or highly personal, are affecting other people too in the same way. And in fact, in practice, when we treat, when we get involved in treating mental health care, we do pay quite a lot of attention to, uh, to self-esteem, even though we don't draw a very explicit connection between it and, and well-being. All these ideas that you find about self-compassion, about self-forgiveness, about assertiveness, about setting boundaries, about saying no, it's all to do with, with self-esteem, but it's not done very deliberately. And it is you know, an essential component of how we see ourselves is how we see other people. So you know, my book is an invitation for people to spend a little more time and attention looking at what's going on for other people in the expectation of you know finding there what you should what you should find there which is the things that bother you most about yourself are affecting other people too and when you can see that those things become easier to live with they become easier to manage you can feel that you're doing better yourself and that's going to help you feel better about yourself you know and all of that's a really vital component about about how you find your way through life. It's quite hard to do, though. I mean, a lot of people are mostly concerned with what's going on for themselves and in their own life rather than what's happening with other people. So what kind of steps could somebody take to change that? Well, the book, the book offers some practical guidance, you know, offers some tips for how, how you should turn yourself into a kind of amateur psychologist. It offers some guidance as to how you can recognize what's going on for other people some of the little insights and clues that people give us to what's going on for them. And it tries to prime you to, you know, to look for what you really should expect to find there, which are, as I say, the things that bother you most about yourself and cause you most trouble. Uh, so the things that bother you most about yourself, are these potentially things that could bother you in other people? Yes, they are. Because you know, in particular, this, this feeling that Everybody will have experienced at time to time when things go wrong, that they are somehow messing up in a unique way, that there's something uniquely different and defective about them, which is what you hear whenever people come for professional assistance, that it's something that affects everybody in every aspect of their life. That idea and trying to trying to avoid that feeling is behind what most of us do that causes most of the problems in our lives. You mentioned that the book offers some specific steps that people can take or perhaps some takeaways that they can go ahead and apply after reading the book. Would you be able to give an example of one or two of those for listeners? There's a very common phenomenon which is referred to as reaction formation, which you'll see it when somebody will, you know, say slightly out of context, apropos of something that uh, I don't have any regrets about deciding to leave law. I don't have any regrets about that. That was fine. And what that usually means is that there's been some little kind of unconscious process which has caused them to have a little qualm, a little regret, a little doubt. And instantly, the mind has kind of 
try to evade that, try to overcome it, and try to stamp it down by the conscious conscious part of the mind overruling it and saying, you know, I really don't, I really don't have any feelings about that at all. I don't, I don't mind that at all. You know, it's the mind in conflict with itself. It's the conscious mind trying to trying to react against and quell this misgiving that's arisen. And it's usually quite effective in the sense that they might not be aware that this process has taken place, but it shows that actually they do have some, most of the big decisions we make in life will give us cause for thought and, and some sense of missed opportunities and regrets and loss. And it's an entirely natural process, but it's, it's a little insight into something that happens all the time to everybody. When somebody says that you know, they don't blame you for something, it probably means that they do blame you a little bit, but they're really trying very hard not to. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Um, would practices like journaling or meditation be good for these type of insights? Or is it best to talk to someone like a psychotherapist? I think journaling and meditation are very good ideas. I think anything that allows you to just take a little bit more time to look more closely at what's going on for your experiences. Talking to a therapist can be very helpful too, but there's any number of ways of going about this. Mm. So for a book like this, I mean, obviously you're drawing a lot on peer reviews academic papers and evidence from psychiatry, psychotherapy, neuroscience, and so on. So for listeners who maybe have less experience with research and managing multiple different sources, like what did your research system look like for your book? It involves, first of all, the practical training and clinical training I had, which started me going down certain directions. And then it involves spending a lot of time looking at academic papers and following from one paper to another um, it's a little bit like you know going going down the YouTube rabbit hole. You kind of find one paper and that refers to something else, and there's a clue there, and you go sniffing after that. I mean, I'm lucky because there's an enormous amount being written about this subject at the moment, and it's coming from different angles and offering different perspectives on it. And it's it's you know it's a very creative time to, to be thinking about and writing about mental health. In terms of reading the latest literature and papers, do you have subscriptions to particular journals? Is this something that you get through your practice or do you, are you researching online? I research online, but I'm also, I did my master's degree at London University and I'm still a member of, of London University and I can access all their periodicals and, and uh, I take myself up to the library at least once a week at, um, at Senate House and, um, and use that time for researching. Oh, nice. Did you write in the library as well? Yeah, I did write at the library, but it's beautiful building. It's lovely. I can imagine. Yeah, I can certainly imagine. Yeah, I wrote a piece several years ago in Trinity College Library in Dublin. It was great to go into an environment like that and get out of an office. Yeah, it is really constricting. Mind. When you have uh, dozens of different papers to go through, are you filing them all away in like a, an analog system or do you have like a citation manager on your computer or is there some other way that you distill all of that information? I've concocted my own kind of database, uh, digital database. Um, that tends to work pretty well. Most things, most things are available online these days. And if you have a subscription through the university, then you can you can get hold of pretty much everything. Mm. And how did you manage uh, like managing your psychotherapy practice with writing this particular book? What what did a typical day look like for you when you were working on it? I've kept my psychotherapy practice pretty small. Um, you know, when I when I retired as a lawyer, you know, it was with a view to stepping back and having a much slower second career. So I have a fair amount of time. I, I'll only see four or five people at a time these days. When I was working in the NHS, you, know, you have to see maybe 20 people. Um, wow, sounds very busy. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. 
So would you work on your book in the morning and then in, in your practice in the afternoon? Or no, it tends to be different days. So I, I kind of keep my client base for um, for a couple of days a week, and the rest of the time I devote to researching, writing, and you know working on ideas, formulating. Hmm, interesting. And you, you mentioned the book took about a year and a half to write. Did you show drafts at certain points to perhaps some of your peers or to an editor? before i did i did i did i showed it to a couple of people and got various bits of feedback and um, that's been very useful i think uh you know i have something you like my acknowledgements where i thank the people involved it would have been it would have been a lot harder without them so i know you published a book on amazon and you know it's, it's widely available for listeners to go ahead and buy so when you're publishing a book like this for a general audience who's perhaps interested in self-help and mental health how, how do you bridge the gap between what can be traditionally seen as inaccessible academic works versus publishing something that's accessible and readable for everyday book readers? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And the answer is, I don't, you know, I'm not sure how I've, whether I've done it, and I'm not sure how you best go about it. I'm, having published the book, I'm now in the process of trying to work out how to market it. And in fact, I've, I've enjoyed listening to a couple of previous guests on your podcast. And that's really, it's an area I don't know a lot about, and I'm going to have to find out about it. And it's, it's given me a lot of food for thought. Yeah, but podcast interviews can be one good way to promote a book. After you published a book, did you get any feedback from family members or peers? Yes, I did. And that's all been very positive and very nice to receive. But of course, you're always, you know, you're always a little doubtful when, you know, people who know you read a book and say, I thought it was really great. Yeah, it can be. Um, yeah, sometimes you need, you need constructive feedback, not somebody who's giving you a pat on the back, so to speak. Uh, I certainly had that issue. So, so I'm also in, always interested in how authors manage the structure of their books and particularly for something that's quite uh, complicated and involves lots of different ideas. Did you outline your book in advance? Did you write it out by longhand or what did your actual writing process look like? The writing process really consists of about five or six years of taking notes and using those notes, um, kind of flush out themes and then researching those themes. And that's probably the bit of the iceberg that you just don't see. The writing itself, we took about a year and a half. And then at that point, yes, it's highly structured. You've worked out already, or I've worked out already, what my main themes are going to be, what the plan of the book needs to be. And it's a matter of kind of slotting down within those sort of headings and subheadings, fleshing out the thoughts and putting the ideas together. Did you set yourself a daily word count or a weekly word counter did you maybe try to finish a certain amount of chapters each month no well i set myself a kind of an hour count maybe it's the lawyer in me still every day that that was designated as a work day then you know i'm quite disciplined i'll sit here and i'll plow through the whole day and work through till i've stopped and sometimes you don't get as much done as you want to so you're a bit impatient with yourself and you'll carry on working into the evening Hmm. what did your uh, self-editing process look like self-editing process involves a lot of rereading so Every day, it's, I'd sit down at the um, sit down at my desk, and I would intend to start from where I'd finished, but actually, invariably, find yourself reading back a couple of pages and rewriting, and then maybe going back even further, or something in that process has, has made you rethink something thirty pages earlier. So the editing process was quite rigorous in the sense that everything got rewritten several times, but fairly fairly spontaneous and organic. It wasn't that structured. And then when you were working with an editor on the book, did you kind of rely on them for line edits and copy edits or did you take care of that yourself? 
No, a bit of both. A bit of both. I got some really useful help from um, from the people I used to help me produce the book. Oh, nice, nice. Would you, would you think you would do an audio book version at some point? I don't think so. I might be wrong about this. I mean, I, as I say, I'm finding my way through this, but it's, it seems to me at the moment it's a book that, because it's quite a data-driven book, it's got quite a lot of dense kind of ideas and that it would suit the printed page better. But I'm going to have to, re- I'm going to, have to start thinking afresh about all of this stuff. Yeah, I've, I found a lot of nonfiction readers enjoy audiobooks and audiobooks can sell quite well. But I completely get what you say. It can be really difficult to represent data with audio. For example, you can't exactly narrate a table. So that can be a challenge. Yeah. So you mentioned when I was talking to you before the interview about a number of psychotherapy and self-help books that, that have made an impact on you over the years. Would you be able to describe one or two of those? Yes. The psychotherapist who's had the biggest impression, made the biggest impression on me is, is a woman called Melanie Klein, who's not particularly well known outside psychoanalytic circles, but is probably the most influential psychotherapist in terms of clinical practice, uh, certainly in the UK and Europe, even more influential than than Sigmund Freud himself. And she was a kind of follower of Freud who became his kind of immediate disciple, at least in terms of Europe. But as I say, there's a lot of very interesting writing going, very challenging writing going on at the moment, which is asking serious questions about established principles in psychiatry and mental health care. And there's writers like James Davis and Lucy Foles who are really um, pushing back on ideas that have been around a long time and are increasingly looking quite hollow. Uh, did you read any popular self-help books, um, the types of books that you'd see in the airport? Um, I, mean, I mean, Melanie Klein, I suppose, died in 1960. She's not traditionally somebody you find when you're going on your holidays uh, in the, the gift shop. That's right. Uh, no, I, I haven't. I haven't delved into the kind of the mainstream self-help section. And maybe that's a kind of oversight when you're writing a book, which at least in part is kind of aimed at the self-help audience. So lots of times when you interview authors, they have different goals for their books. Some have a story that they want to share. Some have a message they want to get out into the world. Some write books because it, you know, it pays the bills for them. Or some have a book as part of their business. But what would you say is the goal for your book? Yeah, I mean, really, I think I just wanted to write it. I think it's partly written out of a degree of frustration about my experience re-encountering the world of mental health care and well-being after 20 years of working in a very different environment. Um, you know, I came from a world which is very driven by results about getting things done. I suppose a lot of workers. Yeah, that's right. But I was disappointed and you know surprised by the level of results that are achieved by mental health care. I was almost traumatized by the uh, kind of incoherence and inconsistency of a lot of the evidence base. And a bit dismayed by the lack of cooperation between the, the different groups of people who are involved in mental health care. I mean, you can really see how much of clinical psychology and psychiatry isn't right by how difficult we find to treat it. You know, the NHS in, in the UK publishes its outcome results for treatment of anxiety and depression, which are far and away the most common mental disorders. And they report that, that about half, only about half of the people they treat recover. But in fact, those figures only take account of the people who complete a course of treatment. And at least half the people who start a course of treatment generally drop out. 
So the reality is that only about one in four people who receive mental health treatment in the UK for anxiety and depression recover. So three quarters of the people who are lucky enough to get it aren't getting any better. It probably doesn't take into account people who, who are undiagnosed who or never sought help. It wouldn't. And also, you know, those are the conditions where people are meant to be able to get better. And if you get a, if you get a diagnosis of personality disorder, then that's meant to be for life. If you get a diagnosis of schizophrenia, the expectation is that you'll be on maintenance dosage of medication for the rest of your life. So despite the clamor for more resource and more money to be devoted to mental health care, it's something that we're really, really bad at. Probably doesn't help that there's a lot of conflicting information online as well. It doesn't. It's a real mess. So I think part of the motivation behind my book was a kind of sense of frustration. I wanted to call out just how little we really know about this subject. And I wanted to talk about something which I felt sure could be helpful to people. And I, you know, I believe that guys believe that the idea of using other people as a benchmark spending more time looking at other people in order to overcome this sense of some kind of unique sense of, of inadequacy is a very, very powerful idea. And it's it's not getting the attention that it really deserves. Do you think you'll write another book at some point? Yeah, I think I will. I think I will. I think I've got, I've got another couple of ideas which I'm already kind of researching and, and putting the notes together for. It sounds like you enjoyed the writing process. I did. I really enjoyed the writing process. I'm one of those people who tends to find out what they think by writing it down. And when I found the right form of words, it's kind of like, ah, there it is. That's it. And I'm in a fortunate position of being able to write because I want to be able to express myself and say something that I think is is kind of worthwhile and important. And if it can get some attention if it can join the the kind of choir of people who are who are drawing attention to some of these real failings of mental health care then that's great where can uh, readers or listeners go if they want to read the book they can find it online on amazon or any of the other any other online retailers they can find it by going into a bookshop and ordering it. Um, it's unlikely but if they're you know if I'm very lucky they might find that it's actually stocked in the bookshop. Thanks for your time, Jonathan. Thank you, Brian. Enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes store or sharing the show on Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you're listening. More reviews, more ratings and more shares will help more people find the Become a Writer Today podcast. And did you know for just a couple of dollars a month, you could become a Patreon for the show? Visit patreon.com forward slash become a writer today or look for the support button in the show notes. Your support will help me record, produce and publish more episodes each month. And if you become a Patreon, I'll give you my writing books, discounts on writing software and on my writing courses. Thank you.